This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Scott Greer a columnist with The Daily Caller and uh, the author of No Campus for White Men, joins us this hour to shine a bright light on the growing obsession with diversity, victimization, and identity politics on today's college campuses and uh, how it's creating an intensely hostile and fearful atmosphere that can only lead ultimately to even greater polarization in North American society. He'll be with us shortly. Uh, What's in the box? Your chance to participate in our remote viewing experiment also coming up using the hashtag TCSRemote if you'd like to participate. TCSRemote. And we'll do the reveal at the bottom of the hour. First, let's introduce the boys in the band. On the Flying V, Gibson Guitar, technical producer Ian Robertson. And on this side of the glass, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, story producer Albert Vinzel. And on the Hammond B3, intern Ryan White. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, Please take a moment to uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We've set a a modest goal of 10,000 subs sometime this year. And you can stream the show there live uh, or watch previous episodes. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Please hit that little red subscribe button. Uh, Gentlemen, assembled, please, and all of you listening at home, please focus your attention to the lovely humidor, the cigar box, on my left, on the desk here at 70 Jefferson Avenue in the Liberty Village of Toronto. Focus. Utilize your remote viewing skills, and uh, we will do the reveal at the bottom of the hour. Again, if you'd like to remote view and participate at home, use the hashtag TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show. TCS Remote. 
and uh, for the individual who comes closest to identifying the contents of this box, we will set you up with some fine Conspiracy Show merchandise. And you can check out the online store at theconspiracyshow.com. Theconspiracyshow.com. All right. Across the country, ugly campus protests. Across the United States, ostensibly. Ugly campus protests over speakers with dissenting viewpoints, as well as a preoccupation with microaggressions, trigger warnings, safe spaces, and brand new gender identities make it obvious that something has gone terribly wrong with higher education. For years, colleges have pursued policies favoring students based not on their merit, but on their race, gender, and sexual orientation. The disturbingly negative effects of this culture are now impossible to deny. Scott Greer's investigative work links such seemingly unrelated trends as rape culture, hysteria, and Black Lives Matter to an overall campus mindset intent on elevating and celebrating leftist-designated protected classes above everyone else while intimidating, censoring, and punishing those who disagree with this perversely un-American agenda. In No Campus for White Men, Greer broadens the usual media focus well beyond coverage of demonstrations by easily offended college students to spotlight the darker forces at work behind the scenes that are feeding higher education metastasizing crisis and how all this results in sustained animosity, first and foremost, toward white men. Greer also documents how this starkly totalitarian culture is not isolated to higher education but is rather a result of trends already operating in society. Thus, he shows today's campus madness may eventually dominate much more of America if if it is not addressed and reversed soon. Scott Greer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on tonight. Thank you for hanging out with us. Uh, Your book begins with an incredibly innocuous uh, incident under normal circumstances. It would be innocuous at Emory College in Atlanta back in March of 2016. Someone had written in chalk a Trump 2016 on the pavement. Imagine the horror. Well, no joke, this caused a number of students to complain that this represented racial intimidation and they demanded the college president condemn the chalking in the strongest terms possible. The president was pressured into issuing a statement sympathizing with the victims The student council actually released emergency funds to provide counseling to those emotionally scarred by the chalk. But it didn't uh, didn't end there, did it, Scott? This spread. Explain. No, it did not end just at Emory. Actually, at several other universities throughout the spring of 2016, there were uh, similar chalking expressing support for Donald Trump and his presidential campaign, which he wasn't the Republican nominee at the time, but he was the Republican frontrunner. And these kept happening, and similar hysteria met any instance of chalking at a university. Uh, there was one instance at uh, at the University of Michigan where there was chalking um, listed, and students demanded a nine one one hotline in case they reported any further chalkings in this manner. Uh, there was a student at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga who participated in a chalking and the student government, she was a member of student government, and student government was demanding she resign over expressing political speech, which in the United States of America is 
you know, protected by the First Amendment, protected by the Constitution, and is a hallowed mark of our democracy and our way of life is that you that your right to voice your political speech is protected. But apparently at universities, they think that's not the case if it offends somebody and it offends protected classes. So we saw uh, all these campuses that similar things were happening that students uh, were just expressing, you know, their political point of view, which is normal for college students, normal in our society, normal in public discourse to do so. Yet students were acting like it was, you know, Klansmen riding on a campus and putting down burning crosses because they, they, at the mere sight of Trump's name in chalk marks, they thought that was very similar to actual legitimate racial violence, which it's of course not. But they were able to use that argument to kind of suppress and to attack further students. There was uh, one incident where there was kind of some violence involved at um, Tulane University in New Orleans. There was a fraternity that set up a Trump wall. Uh, made out of sandbags, and they wrote, you know, Trump 2016 on it. And several African-American football players uh, went to the fraternity house and began demolishing it and rampaging all over the property. And when the fraternity members said stop, they refused and even were physically intimidating the fraternity members to go inside while they, you know, destroyed private property. So there were some cases where it led to near-violence over the mere side of just seeing political speech expressed in chalk marks. Uh, God forfend the students should actually pick up a history book and, and understand that the KKK, uh, and they sort of dust that chestnut off every time something offends them, that the resurrection of the KKK, God forfend they should understand that the KKK was the military wing of the Democratic Party. They need to own that and wear it. Yeah, they, it's not about history it's, or even understanding current politics. And it's also, you know, you look at uh, fascist movements that were suppressing speech and uh, people's right to express their political viewpoints, and they're, you know, wailing about fascism, yet they're acting like fascists. So there's a lot of hypocrisy involved in these protests on campus and what they see as uh, unacceptable speech, while at the same time they're kind of, you know, veering towards totalitarianism and and what they think is a permissible on a college campus. And I was just seeing this. I thought this was a good beginning to No Campus for Wyoming because it really sets up how campus treats speech and what kind of speech is, is allowed. If it's a conservative expressing a viewpoint, that's not allowed. But if you're can if you identify with a minority group or a protected class, whatever you say in response to you know, offending the so-called establishment, which is not really the establishment, or against white people, or anything that's perceived as kind of the battle of old America or battle of Western civilization, that's allowed. And we kind of saw that at the start with the chalking that was happening in spring of 2016. Scott Greer is with us. He's an editor columnist with The Daily Caller, and his uh, book is No Campus for White Men. For, for those listening who may not be familiar with some of the terminology uh, which I'm guessing is now finding its way into the student handbooks on college campuses. Explain what microaggression means. A microaggression, um, you know, 15 years ago would have been a term that very few people know, but it's now gone into the mainstream, at least in American political discourse. A microaggression refers to a unintended uh, verbal or otherwise private um, slight or snub that is delivered by somebody who um, is affiliated with the dominant majority of society and marginalizes the minority. So 
if you are with friends and you say some remark, uh, you know, that Asians are good at math, that would be considered a microaggression. And that's a big problem to express that viewpoint, even though if you're doing it in a private conversation, they still go after that. And there's a lot of cases where a student made a remark in private conversation and it later, later led to um, them facing punishment by the school. So it's about kind of these things that are not publicly expressed speech and are, they're of course protected by the First Amendment and they're delivered in private speech and they're not necessarily intended to be racist or derogatory towards another group. But if they, if a minority member says that that offends them, that that would be a, uh, a microaggression. Now, a lot of them aren't even as, you know, as clear cut as saying Asians are good at math. Some of them could be, you know, a, uh, cafeteria offering ethnic food and them saying, well, you didn't offer this certain dish and that's a microaggression. Or it goes even further ridiculous that having a whiteboard is a microaggression because you're saying that whiteness is the You can't make this stuff <laughs> up. The, you can't make it up. Thing. And yeah, so or it, even it goes ri- Scott, I read one one account where someone re, uh, someone faced disciplinary action because they actually asked someone, where are you from? Meaning, you know, what is your your ethnic background? What country do you come from? It goes on and on. Scott Greer stays with us, editor, columnist with The Daily Caller, and his book is No Campus for White Men. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty, or toll free at one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from eleven p.m. to one a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM seven forty. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. What's in the box? Our big reveal coming up at the bottom of the hour, our weekly remote viewing experiment. Aaron G. uh, Checking in with the hashtag TCS remote. A book of matches. The box isn't a safe space tonight. We are talking about uh, safe spaces and microaggressions and... uh, uh, trigger warnings with Scott Greer, the uh, editor or an, an editor and columnist with The Daily Caller and author of No Campus for White Men, uh, the uh, obsession with uh, diversity, uh, identity politics, and um, uh, really, uh, well, white privilege. We'll get, get around to discussing that as well. Uh, I believe we just passed White Privilege Month where students were asked to wear sort of white uh, puzzle pieces on their... Uh, I mean, anyone who, go, who can afford to go to a, um, a college or university in the United States, I would say, is privileged, uh, no matter the skin color. Um, so we were talking about uh, microaggressions, and um, uh, did we get to trigger warnings? What constitutes a trigger did, warning? What, I, I, what constitutes yeah. a trigger warning, Scott? A trigger warning is something that's put in place uh, in front of a speech or a writing that, and it warns students that beware, there's offensive material ahead and you might not want to read it because, you know, your sensitive 21-year-old mind, even though you're, you know, adult, can't handle the material ahead. And this has become very common in 
newspapers, you know, they'll be reporting on crime reports and it's like trigger warning, you know, you, you, you to some students might be too sensitive to read this, even though, you know, in a society, you're going to have to read something, you know, uncomfortable details and be aware of them. You can't just be, you know, cloistered in your own little reality, your own little bubble or so to speak, your own little safe space. Uh, as you will if you're going to live in the real world, but in, on a college campus, a trigger warning is just another way for them to deny reality and kind of just be stuck in their own little place and not have to deal with ideas and concepts and hard facts that they otherwise don't want to hear. And this is kind of used in a ridiculous manner. I think uh, they were trying to use trigger warnings against um, Ovid, you know, the great uh, Roman writer. They were trying to use it. They said it. <laughs> You know, the scenes he described in his works were just too violent and uh, and um, too offensive for modern-day readers. You know, even though this is a great work of uh, Western culture, we can't read Ovid. And they, so they kind of use this in a way that it gets more and more ridiculous. Well, is there now underway a um, an organized, concerted effort to expunge, let's say, for example, white philosophers or... Um, you know the, the the English masters. Uh, you know the, the the Spencers, the Miltons, the Duns, the Shakespeare's from the curriculum. Yes, there is actually several efforts. Uh, I document this uh, throughout No Campus for Women, uh, and the uh, at Yale University last summer, they were demanding that English courses drop. You know Shakespeare and Milton and all their great uh, writers of the English language. There was a class requirement uh, for all English students that they had to create like. Uh, they have to take this certain class, which taught all the greats of English of the English language. Well, they didn't like it because it was too white and too male. Thus, they wanted more minority writers and more LGBT writers and more people with alternative identities in that course um, because that didn't represent the students. So instead of focusing on the merit and the quality and the influence of the writer, they simply just cared about their skin color. And that was a standard that these students who were protesting against this course wanted imposed so they wanted to get rid of milton and shakespeare and replace them with you know just some writer who's put in that course just because of their skin color and so yeah there's definitely an effort underway where i where they want to eliminate these kind of old grace of the english language and just of all western languages because they're just too white to handle and they want they just want to base the quality of a person's writings or their works based on their skin color or their alternative identity that that puts them at a difference from, you know, the old uh, dead white male patriarchy that they hate so much. Radicalism on, on college campuses is not new. Uh, most of us remember or at least have read about uh, the protests on campuses throughout the 1960s and 70s. But as you point out in No Campus for White Men, the difference back then was students were protesting for more freedom of, of speech. And today's protests mm-hmm. on college campuses, students and many of their cultural Marxist professors are actually demanding less freedom of speech. Uh, obviously, college is supposed to be about being exposed to a diversity of ideas, even painful or uncomfortable ideas. So uh, what, what, are they, what are they talking about? What's, you know, what kind of education are they getting? What are they learning? 
Yeah, and uh, going on that free speech, the uh, difference between the 60s and today was highlighted in this uh, picture that went viral on the Internet over the weekend. There was a protest at Berkeley, and somebody burnt a free speech sign, a, a sign that literally had free speech, and somebody was uh, <laughs> sorry, left that protester just... was burning it. And they compared it with a protest at Berkeley in the 1960s where the sign out in front is free speech. So it really just illustrated what's happened. Well, what they're learning is that uh, certain ideas shouldn't even be heard or tolerated. It's kind of the same underlying motivation that for why they want trigger warnings and they want to criminalize microaggressions and they want safe spaces is that they feel that they can restrict what ideas are put out there because if they hear these ideas, they're not just bad because of they're going to list the facts and reasons for that. They're going to say they're bad because they threaten students. That if these ideas are expressed, minority students and those who come from protected classes are at risk of you know, some type of violence or they're going to be marginalized just by certain ideas expressed. So the reason why they oppose free speech is free speech forces them to hear ideas that they don't want to hear. So that's why they're opposing it. And they think this is a good thing because they think if, if you give a platform to a conservative speaker, to somebody like Charles Murray, which last week he went to uh, speak at Middlebury College in Vermont and a riot, well, pro- he got shouted down. He had to force his cancel delivering a speech before a student audience. He had to deliver by video. And when he was leaving, he, he and another professor were assaulted. And the professor actually had neck injuries because they pulled her hair. And then they began attacking his car. So the, all this violence was given to this person just because they thought his views shouldn't even be allowed to be aired on a college campus. So they think they're doing the morally right thing by wanting to suppress speech because if somehow if you utter these words, your life is in danger. And that's the kind of mentality they have. It's very crazy what they have, but they think that they're actually doing right by suppressing speech. Is it fair to say, at least my my feeling is that they are being encouraged uh, in this behavior by the mainstream media. And even the former attorney general recently said, Ms. Lynch, on record, is saying uh, that uh, there needs to be more blood in the streets. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is encouragement. I think I, one of the you know one of the instances that inspired uh, me to write this was in November 2015. There were large protests at the University of Missouri and at, um, to unseat the university president there. And over 30 African-American football players actually joined a boycott to unseat him. And the whole reason they were wanting to unseat him is because of systemic racism that was going on, which is uh, apparently <laughs> they, there was kind of imaginary racism. There wasn't any real racist incidents on the campus, but all these activists were claiming that. Well, the media was celebrating these people as heroes even though they're protesting over something ridiculous and they're forcing this president out under the most dubious circumstances possible. And all their demands were about creating special benefits only for minority students. It would not be available for the whole student body. They would get free counseling and all these great benefits that would be reserved exclusively for minority students and not for the whole student body. But the media valorized them, and that led to further protests throughout uh, fall of 2015 at other campuses because they saw the media was celebrating these protesters who uh, were protesting over imaginary racism that didn't exist and forced a good man out of his job. They saw them be the mainstream media celebrating them as heroes. And we're seeing that now with more extremism on campus because the media is claiming that, you know, our president, the American president is a fascist Nazi who's going to kill everybody. So they, the media, these kids hear this from the media and they're like, 
well, I want to resist this fascist dictator. I don't want to go down with a fight. So then they become more violent, more extreme, and all their actions are justified because they're not just uh, resisting against political opponents. They're resisting in the uh, tyranny, the tyranny of Trump. So they must fight against him. So, yeah, I think the media and a lot of powerful figures do give encouragement to these people. They do tell these kids that, you know, this person who's a conservative or a libertarian isn't, you know, a conservative libertarian. They say they're a Nazi or white supremacist or fascist, and you should not listen to their points of view. And I think the greater society does give comfort to a lot of these incidents. Now, sometimes they do condemn their excesses, but they give them the initial impetus to do a lot of this violence and extremism and speech suppression. God forfend a conservative should walk out onto campus at Berkeley and, and be identified as such. He, he risks being uh, beaten by someone wielding a love Trump's hate sign. Uh, I started uh, teaching college in the fall of 2013, and I had rarely stepped foot on a college campus since I graduated in the early 90s. And, and it was, I have to admit, quite a culture shock for me, and that's fine. Uh, but I didn't curl up in the fetal position under the dean's desk and demand coloring books and hot cocoa. Uh, I wasn't asked back, however, uh, after I believe it was the, the winter semester of 2015. And the administration said that it was because of declining enrollment. But I suspect it had a lot to do with my refusal to teach a class in popular culture that gender was a social construct. I said, well, you know that's fine if if they want if the students want to read about that and and utilize their critical thinking skills and arrive at that on their own but i'm not going to proclaim from the lectern that this is the case uh and again not being asked back i'm wondering and as a conservative uh and i had to i kept my head down and i didn't i didn't announce that but um it's pretty tough being a conservative uh and being on the faculty in a, a college campus these days do conservative college professors in the United States, speak out, or do they 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 recognize that they must keep quiet in order to keep their job? I think most of them stay quiet, and especially in the kind of radical atmosphere that happens now, because uh, students will target you. They will target you for harassment. They will, you know, protest your classrooms. They will, uh, you know, they'll fill your rate your professor page with all these negative reviews that you're a Nazi and a racist just for your political viewpoints. And the rest of the and the the rest of you know your fellow professors are going to hate you and not want you, not want to teach with you and will not approve you for tenure. So pretty much all conservative professors have to keep their head down unless they have you know very well established tenure and they know that you know their job's not going to be affected and they're like well whatever these kids get upset. So it takes a lot of courage and a lot of willpower to actually speak out on campus because they know the consequences and a lot of. Uh, left-wing student agitators know they want to harass and intimidate them. They know that intimidation works, and they know if they harass them enough that most people will just want to, you know, go along to get along because nobody wants, you know, their emails and phone calls filled up with death threats. So they will go along and keep quiet just to maintain peace of mind. So I think most people keep it silent, and that's what allows the large, violent, you know, well, it's more like a minority the violent minority to dominate discourse on campus and to make it uh, left-wing orthodoxy so stuck in place because if you challenge it, you become the enemy. You become everyone's hated villain 
and there's serious consequences for that. There was a there was a professor at New York University who had a Twitter account where he's criticizing political correctness, and the school actually put him on discipline uh, probation for just for running a Twitter account that was expressing you know very pretty mild points of view. He was eventually reinstated just because of uh, backlash from conservative media, but it just goes to show you that if you speak out. Even under a pseudonym, you know, there's severe consequences for it. It's starting to sound like the early stages of the Cultural Revolution in China. I mean, are there, are there, are there little commissars running around campuses taking names and reporting, reporting uh, uh, politically incorrect uh, people to, to their superiors? Are there, are there, are there kangaroo courts? Uh, are there spies? There are actually a few examples of campuses where it's not necessarily they're reporting them to any authority, but there are a few campuses where there's websites or Facebook pages where they list every student who they think is a conservative. And, of course, they don't list them. Here's all the conservatives. They're like, these people are racist. And they list their names, their addresses, their all their personal information, and they put them down there. So there's been a few schools. There was a private school in, the, in New England. The name is, is escaping me at the moment, where they actually, the school did take disciplinary action against the students who are running this page that was, um, you know, doxing, that was uh, posting all this personal information about these students for the sole purpose of political intimidation. And they were like complaining. They're like, well, we're doing a good deed. We're, we're exposing racists. But most of these kids, of course, were not racist. They were just conservatives or libertarians or people who are not a part of the, uh, you know, the politically correct dogma of campus. They were just people outsiders. And these students were trying to shame and intimidate them um, by calling them racist and listing all their personal information on the Internet. So there's a few cases of this happening, and I think there's going to be more of this happening because there's a lot of these leftists, uh, they call themselves anti-fascists. You know, they're not really protesting real fascists. They just protest people who disagree with them, um, who've been doing this for a long time, where they expose the personal information and all the data of individuals that they oppose for the purpose of intimidation and threatening them to keep silent. And I think we're going to see this more on uh, college campuses where they run these websites that are publicizing all the information of people they perceive as uh, dissidents. Yeah, uh, mayhaps it's time to call the folks at Webster's and uh, a redefinition of the word fascist. A fascist is simply someone who's winning an argument with a liberal. Um, you mention in uh, in the book a law professor, Glenn Reynolds, and we're running up against a break here. We'll, we'll uh, talk about uh, his rather novel idea when we come back. Law professor Glenn Reynolds writing a column uh, And as I say, a very novel idea. You'll want to hear what that is when we come back. Scott Greer, editor, columnist, The Daily Caller, No Campus for White Men. My name is Richard Serrett, and you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4. 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
from Zoomer Radio. All right, uh, welcome back, and uh, we'll uh, get back to our conversation with Scott Greer, author of No Campus for White Men, in uh, just a moment. Just a reminder, coming up next week on the program, John Rappaport and uh, his website, of course, No More Fake News. Now, No More Fake News has been around since the early 2000s. What a great name, given the, uh, the current climate. No More Fake News. John Rappaport and uh, our dear friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. That's, uh, that's next week. Coming up in the next hour, another good friend of the program, Victor Vigiani, the hardest working man in ufology in Canada and uh, also the executive director of Zealand News Network. He'll be uh, live in studio and Preston Dennett uh, will be joining us as well on the uh, YouTube live stream, and uh, he, the author of Inside UFOs. Uh, some remarkable uh, cases, 10 brand new cases you've never heard before involving extraterrestrial contact. All right. Um, oh, let's uh, do our reveal here. Again, what's in the box? Using the hashtag TCS remote. And uh, let's see, we have, I mentioned Aaron G, a book of matches. Ross is a something metal, a harmonica. Let's see, what else do we have here? Uh, Mike R., a safety pin or a baby soother? The baby soother would be for the college campuses. (laughs) Uh, And let's go around the horn here very quickly, and let's start with, uh, let's see, Ryan, what's in the box? I see a little porcelain horse. A porcelain horsey. All right, and uh, Albert? It's a guess. I'm going to guess a hockey card. A hockey card. All right, and uh, Ian in the other room? Uh, something green. Something green? Yeah, I see, I see like a, like a plant, but it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it, well, it could make sense. All right. Uh, now, we haven't checked in with Victor yet. Victor's hanging out for the next hour. Did you want to utilize your remote viewing skills very quickly? Actually, yeah. I, I, think, it's, I think it's a piece of gum. Like a I, piece I, of I, gum? Like a, either bubble gum or sort of like a stick of gum or something like that. All right. Well, unfortunately, no one came close. We are, of course, uh, nicely into spring training and uh, being a big baseball fan. There we have it. It's a baseball. What kind? What kind? Is it Rawlings? Uh, I don't know. There's no name on Oh, wait a minute. It's Winner's Choice. Winner's Choice. I don't know. Okay. There you go. Oh, my goodness. I, right. I, I said bubble gum with a ball. No, that wasn't close. No, not even. Don't even try. Okay, thank you very much for playing at home. All right, let's get back to our conversation uh, with Scott Greer. And um, we were mentioning this uh, law professor, Glenn Glenn Reynolds, uh, who had a rather novel idea he published in his column on uh, what to do with these uh, campus college students. And uh, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that, uh, Scott? Yeah, Glenn Reynolds, uh, he's a very uh, strong uh, conservative professor. He's got a lot of great views. Uh, a lot of what he uh, says would probably be in agreement with the story. But uh, right after, on this one column, this happened right after uh, the Yale University protests and the University of Missouri protests in November 2015. And he saw all these kids going crazy. And he's like, you know what, maybe we should raise the voting age to 25 because college kids now are not uh, – by these actions that all these protests happening, they're showing a level of immaturity that shows that they're not responsible enough to be voting yet. Uh, which, you know, it's a kind of interesting idea. But when I first saw that, I was like, well, this is kind of uh, painting all of these kids, everyone who's, you know, 18 to 24, as being similar to these protesters, which isn't necessarily correct, I think. But it is, it does show kind of the disturbing nature of these protesters. I don't want these protesters. Uh, 
I don't think necessarily these protesters understand the American political process enough to make informed decisions when they vote clearly by their actions. But I think for the rest of the majority of the students, I don't necessarily see that it's as necessarily a generational problem. Um, I just see it as a vocal and powerful minority who's taking over college campuses and the rest of the majority doesn't want to challenge it because they're, they have the sympathy of the administrators and professors and kind of the sympathy of the media. And yeah, I think the word you're looking for is intimidation. They've been intimidated. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they, they intimidate the rest of the campus. So the majority stay silent while these, um, the, while these, uh, the, the loud and very noticeable minority, they're not the silent majority, uh, gains the headlines with their ridiculous protests. I hope so. I, I was heartened to, to read uh, that was your, your sort of your takeaway, that, that, that we are not talking about most uh, students. And I don't want to think that way. Um, but when you, when you think about this group and many of them, not well, you say it's a minority, but they are willfully closing their ears to alternative viewpoints uh, then, uh, well, you could say that about many low, low information voters. Uh, there are lots of um, people well into adulthood that vote conserv- or vote Republican or they vote liberal up here in Canada because their father and their grandfather did. So there's not much difference on that score. So yeah, Glenn Reynolds, it's it's provocative. It's probably uh, un- unworkable. But what was the reaction? Was there any backlash to that column? No, I think most people thought, and I think the 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 gist and spirit of it was in the right direction because it was it was a reaction to the craziness, and it was a suggestion that maybe this is a generational thing. So I think uh, I think it was just a little too you know broad. I don't think there was much backlash against it. I think a lot of people were like that's an interesting idea. Uh, Glenn Reynolds is uh, you know he makes a lot of provocative suggestions, and that's what makes him a very good columnist. And it definitely got people talking. I don't think there was much backlash towards it. And I think it 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 just showed the kind of out, proper outrage towards campuses being taken over by these protesters. Uh, we were talking earlier about identity politics on college campuses and how it has metastasized in some instances uh, into outright hatred towards whites and you write in the book about how this came to a, a, a head, a very ugly situation at Dartmouth back in 2015. Tell us what happened. Yeah, Dartmouth University, there was a Black Lives Matter protest that happened at this campus, and several students, uh, all of them African-American or mostly African-American, stormed to this Dartmouth library and began screaming, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter you know, disrupting uh, several students studying for, I believe it was even during finals week. You know, they were trying to study for the, very hard for the finals so they could get good grades. And they're disrupting um, them being able to study and demanding that everyone shout Black Lives Matter. Well, few who would not say it, they began attacking, you know, assaulting, screaming and cussing out at people for not even showing necessarily resistance, but for not joining in their protests. It was almost them humiliating anyone they deemed as an enemy. And usually they just picked out somebody just because they they were white. Or the, even if they weren't saying it enthusiastically they, you know, enough. You white person, you know. Right. What? Or even if they weren't saying it enthusiastically enough. Yeah, it was all about, it was all of a show of force and a show of intimidation. And they went screaming, you know, attacking people through this library. And afterwards, the worst part is the Dartmouth University officials apologized to the protesters afterwards for what happened, for 
apparently for racial insensitivity. They didn't apologize to the people of being attacked and to being cussed at. They apologized to the protesters initially. Eventually, the, the school, there was so much backlash against that ridiculous act that the school eventually apologized also to the students who had their studies interrupted and were belittled and you know attacked by raging protesters. So it also just goes to show how the you know the the school establishment itself often comes down on the side of the protesters, even when there's a clear outrage involved. All right, we will uh, step away here, and uh, when we come back, I want to talk about what is going to happen uh, with these students once they get out into the real world and become editors or general managers at radio stations or city councilors. Uh, We'll uh, discuss that and much more with Scott Greer, the author of No Campus for White Men, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Scott Greer stays with us for a short while yet, author of No Campus for White Men. He is uh, editor and columnist at uh, The Daily Caller. Uh, Tell me about the, the push to eliminate the use of gender-specific pronouns. Now, this one is actually uh, catching up here in Canada, too, unfortunately. Yeah, well, not surprising with, with uh, Justin Trudeau as prime minister. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he starts legislating that. But, uh, yeah, I described this in No Cams for White Men, is that a lot of these schools are issuing guidelines for students now that they must not call somebody that they see as a man or a woman as he or she. They have to ask them what's their preferred pronoun, and if they, uh, it might be better just to use gender neutral nouns like zir and zur. They, it sounds like stuff out of, of a sci-fi novel. What they suggest, but this is actually serious guidelines that several schools throughout the country are issuing to their students and recommending that they don't go up to somebody and immediately, you know, assume that they're a he or she, even though they clearly look like one because that would be, of course, a microaggression. So they must actually go up to them and ask, what are your preferred pronouns? And then go with that. And before that, use these kind of gender-neutral gobbledygook that (laughs) sounds like something out of Star Trek to refer to them before they identify themselves as a uh, as a he or she or whatever they want to identify as. Right. I mean, we, and we should point out that the sensitivity is in, is important, and but these things can be handled on a case by case situation. A student can go up to mm-hmm. a, a professor, or it can be discussed, in, you know, some in some way. But to 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 lay these blanket rules down is, uh, it almost sounds like something from a Monty Python sketch. Uh, and there was a professor up here in Toronto who actually stood up and said, I- I'm sorry, I'm not playing this game. And he was just routed in the press. Uh, it was um, – it's – it's. It, if it wasn't so, uh, I don't know, sad, you'd have to laugh. But it, it's it's tragic and it's it's serious. It has serious implications. Uh, you, But you yeah, say – yeah, sorry, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, it's very maddening because it makes – 
you know, it, it, it kind of halts everything to go about it this way to, you know, to demand. And, and we have to say this, that, you know, transgender people in the United States only make up about 0.2, 0.3% of the population. And we're going to upend how we communicate with each other. You know, the basic part of, you know, communicate a large part of communication is assuming, you know, a gender, uh, what gender that person is, because he, she, you know, this is very important conversation. So we're upending how we communicate with each other just to conform to a very, very small minority of people that might not actually be, you know, legitimately, you know, this might not be legitimately that they're actually feel that they're a woman, that this might be a sign of mental illness. So we're doing all these things just to appease this very small minority that might actually be suffering from mental illness. So it's, it is very disturbingly for our society that we would upend how we talk with one another just to appease this small fragment of society. You refer to these, this vocal minority of students, and again, they are uh, obviously um, simpatico with an, you know, a large number of the faculty as well. They're playing along. Um, but you call them the, the coalition of the aggrieved, which I think is a terrific name. But you say that they are not the product of uh, helicopter parents or, being, or, or overtly coddled backgrounds. Then what is the cause? What, where, do these, um, uh, co- where does this coalition of the aggrieved come from? I think it's a society thing of an embrace of kind of racial identity politics and also the uh, pedestaling of victimhood, victimization in our society. These are kind of social trends, kind of more intellectual trends, rather than necessarily helicopter parenting. We've had coddled children for, you know, ever and ever. And a lot of these kids not necessarily come from wealthy backgrounds and or where it's helicopter parenting. And I think it's almost in some ways when we refer to that, the necessarily of coddled parents is that it's kind of a uh, white suburban anxiety that some of these kids were raising up. They're not tough enough as the last generation. Well, in some cases that's true, but that's not necessarily what's inspiring the campus protest. In society in general, we've kind of built this uh, notion that you should agitate for your own racial group, that it, if you're a minority, not, not necessarily if you're white. That's, now, that's very bad, and that's not accepted on a college campus. But if you're in a protected class or a minority or some other group that you feel that has been oppressed by the dominant majority, you are right to advocate for your sole group interest, to see yourself as being your whole political ideology, your whole way of looking at the world comes from your racial or sexual identity. It is good for you to do that, and it's good to advocate for pol- for political change on that basis. And at the same time, we have this idea in our society where victims, you know, for ages and ages and ages, nobody wanted to be a victim. Nobody wanted that stigma. Being a victim made you seem weak and lesser in your community, but now it makes you seem like the hero. Being a victim is what everybody wants to, wants to be, and we have this competition to see who can be the better victim, who's been the most oppressed. And... That's really what drives it, because all these, when all these kids are agitating for their own cause on campus, they always say, well, I'm oppressed, and these words are going to hurt me. And as a, as a victim, as an oppressed person, we can't let me be at risk of this, because we're the most at risk to be at harm by our oppressed status. And this comes from a point of weakness, but it's actually a point of strength, because they get more moral status. They have more value. They are considered better people than the privileged, the, the oppressors. Who, who usually, for most regards, are the straight white Christian men, because 
they're the ones doing all the oppressing, so to speak, even though they're not really doing any oppressing. Um, but and so this new uh, kind of moral culture that they've built centering around victimhood, it puts elevates people based on having a minority identity. So it's more of these trends, that, these social trends that are happening in society that students are picking up on and realizing they can gain power and influence by embracing them and using them to agitate for their own political cause. I, I wonder what they would do with someone who was seemingly white, uh, but was in fact of Greek ancestry, and uh, their ancestors uh, endured 400 years of slavery under the Ottoman Empire. Do they not have victim status because they're white? No, they don't have victim status. They're oppressors. Actually, the, even it, under the system, whites... No, I, I explain this very in-depth in a whole chapter in No Camps for White Men about white guilt. No matter where your background or beliefs, you are responsible for everything bad white people have done. Slavery, the excesses of imperialism, segregation, anything bad that whites have done in the past, you are responsible for. So that Greek person, you know, if you came here, if your ancestors came here in 1900, you're somehow responsible for antebellum slavery, even though you're family wasn't even here and you're suffering under the yoke of the you know the ottoman empire like you said they don't care they see you as an evil white man who is just as equal to uh you know jefferson davis uh just because of the color of your skin so all white people are responsible for all these bad things in history no matter their background or beliefs and they have to feel bad for this and this is drilled into their minds at college campus uh, here, here's what I worry about, and, and as you point out, this trend is already underway because this uh, this trend started a while ago, and certain, you know cohorts have already graduated, and some of this the, this coalition of the uh, aggrieved have already found themselves into positions of power, uh, but uh, more and more graduating, they will become. Uh, editors at newspapers, if newspapers still <laughs> exist. Uh, they will be uh, city councilors. They will be general managers at radio stations. Uh, and so this is, I'm, I'm going to use the term metastasizing. Uh, and when these individuals, assuming they don't, you know, grow up, <laughs> if I, I'll use that, that, that term, they won't grow up. They'll continue in this mindset uh, if they continue to take places of power, and let's face it, they hate Western values. They hate freedom of speech. They hate capitalism. Do, do they not represent some sort of existential threat to Western civilization as we know it? Yes, because uh, the worst part about this is not that they're taking over campuses. It's that they'll take over the rest of institutions of society. And they did this before. A lot of the radicals of the 60s later became leaders in their own regard. I mean, Eric Holder, uh, Obama's longest-serving U.S. Attorney General, was a protest leader when he was when he was in college. And then, you know, we wonder why he was so uh, radical when he was Attorney General, because it was for, owing from his days as a, as a college protester. So the worst part about these kids is that they want to remake the rest of America, the rest of North America, into the environment that they experienced during their four years in college. And that's what's most disturbing about this is that it's going to infect the rest of society and it's going to take us down a very dark path. So the, mo it, it, the seeing this is just a, is, is an issue limited to higher education and our universities doesn't see the bigger problem and how this can infect the rest of society. Because the, what kids learn in their you know 18 to 22 years will inspire them and influence them for the rest of their lives. And if this is what they're learning, you know, this kind of anti-white hatred, 
this celebration of victimhood, that's what they're going to take into the workplace and even worse into the halls of power. Uh, it, dare I say, mention that it, it's almost the, the, the early stages of civil war. Yeah, there's a lot of polarization now. There is such so much division now. I mean, it's in America. I don't know if necessarily it will reach the levels of civil war, but I mean, just under Trump, I mean, the amount of division we've had, I've never seen this in my lifetime. And I've, you know, I've talked with people who are much older than me and they've never seen it. Even back in the 60s, we, uh, and there's no chance, I don't see even a chance of it coming together. Uh, and in, when we look at our college campuses and the ideas that are impacting them, the fact that no matter, you know, you can be a white liberal, but yet you're still a white supremacist. That kind of idea is very troubling, especially with the demographics changing in this country. If this is how a lot of these people are going to view America and certain people who, you know, their fellow Americans, this is a very bad sign for the country. Um, the, the colleges and universities, is there not some obligation for them, the administration, to protect First Amendment rights, and is that not tied to funding? For example, could the new Secretary of Education, uh, could could she not, uh, Betsy DeVos, could she not pull funding from, let's say, Berkeley if they're not going to protect the First Amendment? Yeah, states and federal funding, all universities in America, pretty much, there's only a few, like a very tiny number of exceptions depend on funding, even if they're private schools, because all private schools depend on student loans, which are federally funded. And thus, we could you could threaten them with the funding. And I think it was, you know, right after a riot occurred at UC Berkeley last month, President Trump threatened to defund them if they were going to protect First Amendment. And I think the most effective strategy for right now, if, you know, concerned parents and students, is to pressure their lawmakers to go after these school administrators to threaten them with defunding if they're not going to protect the First Amendment, if they're going to allow conservative students to continue to be threatened and intimidated while on a conscious campus just for having their, uh, you know, a different point of view. And that's arguably right now in the short term, the most effective tactic is to threaten, is to use, is to hope our elected officials use the powers that they have, the power of the first string to go after these administrators and to force them to grow a background to stand up to campus agitators. Indeed. Uh, well, thank you for shining a light on this most disturbing trend, Scott Greer. I appreciate it. Thank you. No campus for white men. My website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. S-Y because I love you, T. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft... That greasy spoon just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods. Hello to uh, all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Zoomer Radio. And uh, those of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, the podcast, of course, at Stitcher Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and TalkZone.com. 
those of you watching the live stream on YouTube and those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device with the Conspiracy Show and the Zoomer Radio apps, both terrific, both free downloads. Wherever and however you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank thee for your fine company. Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zeland Communications and the Zeland News Network is here in studio and will be joined along by uh, author Preston Dennett uh, shortly to discuss alien encounters in just a few moments. Uh, please take uh, some time. Get on up to the website strangeplanet.ca. That's a landing page for my various projects, radio and television. There's a radio page for this show, of course, The Conspiracy Show. Check it out. Register as a member by clicking on the blue Members button on the left-hand side. It's fast, it's easy, it's free. And once you're a member, you gain access to member-only areas like the audio archives and the book club. Uh, And uh, there's also a TV section, of course, for my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, which... Uh, continues to air on Vision TV. We did four seasons. Theconspiracyshow.com Theconspiracyshow.com Click on the uh, store in the menu bar and uh, check out all the Conspiracy Show merchandise. Phone cases and T-shirts and hoodies and mugs and um, uh, what else? Sweatshirts. Theconspiracyshow.com All right. Uh, Most UFO books are kind of rehashes of old cases. Uh, but Inside UFOs is, um, is fresh. It presents research with 10 all-new, never-before-heard never original cases of extensive contact. A wide variety of ETs are presented, including various types of greys, praying mantis types, ETs, humanoids, and Nordics. The witnesses are normal, everyday people who suddenly find themselves in very unusual situations. The unique and unusual nature of the cases in this book are a surprise even to those well-versed in the UFO literature, and we are going to examine several of these never-before-heard cases of alien contact over the course of this hour of The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Victor Vigiani is a good friend, long-time contributor to this program. He's one of Canada's hardest-working ufologists and one of the leading voices for UFO ET disclosure in this country. He's the executive director of Zeland News Network, an independent news service dedicated to the compilation, distribution, and analysis of news and intelligence related to the national security and geopolitical implications of the disclosure of the extraterrestrial presence now engaging the human race. The website is zlandcommunications.blogspot.ca. Victor, thanks for making the trip in for Mr. and Mrs. Saga. How are you? Just fine, thank you. Once again, it's a great pleasure to be here. One of the things I'm appreciating about uh, Preston Dennett, the author of Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials, is the original ground uh, that he covers while researching this topic. And I'm, we were mentioning this off, off air before, um, how... You know, we talk about alien contact and mm-hmm. abductions and, and UFO sightings to the point where it almost becomes mundane and we lose sight of the fact that for someone who's never heard about this stuff before, I mean, this is mind-blowing stuff. Yeah, there, there seems to be sort of a, a lessening of sensitivity. The more you talk about it, it becomes ho-hum. But in, in looking at some of the work by Preston, my goodness, 18 books. I mean, I've been around this whole phenomenon 
for going on uh, 40 years, and I have yet to see such a large compendium of information that's, as you said earlier, it's fresh. I mean, this stuff is really, really hot. Well, I mean, I'm uh, compared to you, I am a novice in this field. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but a lot of the stuff that Preston talks about in previous books, and I want to talk about some of the other stuff that he's done, and of I course. think you're going to cover off the, 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 uh, the, new, the new material. But I was not familiar with things like alien breathing pools, were you familiar with that? No. I've okay. not heard about that at all, no. Or or alien zoos. Uh, or, um, well, I mean, we, we've heard, you know, rumors about, um, you know, the murder of, of witnesses. But I haven't seen it in print to the extent that Preston delves into he it. He seems to have captured it in a way that's totally unique. All right. Let's get Preston Dennett in here. He began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986, 30 years ago, when he discovered his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. Since then, he's interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated a wide variety of paranormal phenomena. He, is a, he was a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, a ghost hunter, a paranormal researcher, and the author of 18 books, I think it's 19 now, and more than 100 articles on UFOs and the paranormal. His articles have appeared in numerous magazines, including Fate, Atlantis Rising, MUFON UFO Journal, Nexus, Paranormal Magazine, UFO Magazine, Mysteries Magazine, Ufologist, and others. He's written pretty close, as I say, to 20 books on UFOs, strange creatures, and things paranormal. And his latest is Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact with extraterrestrials. Preston Dennett, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. And it's great to have you with us. This is your first time on the show, and there's a lot of ground to cover because you've covered a lot of territory over your 30 years and almost 20 books. So I want to ask you about something that you've written about previously that just jumped out at me immediately. And, um, and we will get to uh, the, you know, the new material, and I'm, I'm going to let uh, my, my colleague Victor Vigiani uh, address some of those cases. But one of the hidden dangers of being a UFO investigator, you write, is becoming investigated by the UFOs themselves. You say it's a clear-cut case of the hunter becoming the hunted. So after 30 years researching and writing about extraterrestrials, uh, Preston, have you become the hunted? I have, and uh, really kind of shocked me. I, I have to tell you, you know, growing up, never saw UFOs. Uh, never saw anything, actually, until I started investigating it. And almost immediately after I started get, getting into this field, I began having some really profound experiences, um, some really actually close-up sightings. I remember the first one was about a year after I got started investigating. I was driving home from my sister-in-law, my brother's house. I'd been talking about UFOs intensely with them. And this ball of light drops down out of the sky. This was around, let me see, late July, probably around 1990. And this thing, I'm thinking, God, you know, it's got to be a bird. What is this? But it's not a bird. It looks like a golf ball. And it's, it's not a golf ball either. It's just this glowing ball of light, very small. Comes right up to my windshield. You know, I'm driving pretty slowly. It's a residential road. And this ball of light just kind of scoots back and forth right in front of my windshield, I'm going to say about two or three times, and zips forward and goes straight up into the sky and disappears. And that's the first sighting. 
Yeah, and they came pretty regularly after that. And you believe it's a result of the fact that you now are actively involved in in researching, studying this phenomena, that you now are being observed? Yeah, you know, at some point I came to that conclusion, because I'm that first time, I felt like it targeted me. Just came out of the sky from nowhere and came right up to my car. And uh, that seemed really unusual to me, especially because I was so interested in this stuff. And uh, other sightings following that, you know, I sort of had the same impression. One time I was right in the middle of an intense investigation with this lady who was having really amazing encounters, very extensive. Um, People all around her were seeing UFOs. Wherever she moved, there'd be a wave of sightings. Her friends had seen UFOs, her neighbors, many of her family members. And uh, I was closely associating with her. And it wasn't long before I started having sightings uh, once with her and uh, once while I was actually transcribing an interview about her. And uh, it was very strange because I had this very strong impression to run onto the roof of the condo where I lived at the time. And this is not something I've ever done. Uh, I had no reason to do it other than this very strong compulsion. Ran to the top of the condo, looked out, and I'm going to say about mm, 100 feet away, 50 feet up, this orange light appeared. And I got a really strong, and I know how this sounds, but this is what happened. I got a strong, I'll call it telepathic impression that said, you know, we are, Wen- I'll call her Wendy, we are Wendy's ETs. This is us. We're real. You know, as I was transcribing her interview, I was, I mean, it was just so amazing. I was getting skeptical. So I think that's why they came and contacted me. But it was, it was straight on in my face. And this orange light just kind of started darting back and forth as if to say, you know, look, this is not a conventional plane. We're truly here and disappeared. It was a very brief sighting, but interactive, if you know what I mean. And right, it right. Really it convinced me that, oh, my God, you know, these guys are aware of what I'm doing. Well, that's, I guess, an occupational therapy, or is it? Let me work at my colleague Victor Vigiani in here, because what you're listening to this, Victor, is, is in your experience, is this fairly common among UFO researchers that once they immerse themselves in this, then they become observed? Well, I would say yes, uh, and, and I say that through my own personal experience, uh, knowing people who have gone into uh, this whole field of research. But I think there's a there's a tipping point at, at, at in, in somewhere along the line, where there, there's sort of an intuitive um, whatever it happens to be when certain individuals delve into this issue, uh, this, the level of intuition that that seems to be reflected among the researchers or the researcher. Uh, for some reason, whoever these beings are, they tap into that intuition and they manifest themselves in different ways. And I've heard this very, very strongly from several researchers, both in Australia and here in Canada and, and, and several in the United States. So it's not, it's not uncommon for this to, to happen. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why. Do, do, do whoever these beings are, do they just they pick up on this intuition, this, this level of consciousness that people have? But uh, there's just no rational way to really explain what some of the researchers go through once they begin delving into this. And it's sort of a, a, a cosmic experience that they go through. And, and it doesn't happen to everybody either. It, I mean, I've been doing this for, for 40 years. And I think I've had maybe, I think, one sighting that seemed to be legitimate. But that's about it. It's it not, it not struck me in, in the forehead in any way that perhaps Preston has been.
All right, we will come back uh, with Preston Dennett, Victor Vigiani, as we uh, discuss Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Preston Dennett. And uh, his latest is Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials. This is fresh. Uh, these are never-before-heard accounts of um, uh, contact with extraterrestrials. Ten brand-new cases. And I'm going to throw it over to my colleague, Victor Vigiani. Yeah, I, I think that uh, there's a couple of um, things that you've listed. Uh, the teacher stopping on a road and, you know, huge fear, sphere drops down and, uh, you know, the teacher stops teaching. Uh, all kinds of things are happening uh, in, in the multiple numbers of things you're describing, Preston. But the one that I really want to focus on for a moment has two aspects to it. It's the, the naval electronics specialist has a complex UFO encounter aboard a Navy ship and is taught by the ETs about alternative energy sources. That's a two-pronged thing in terms of not only just the, um, the, the energy factor, the alternative energy, but also the national security implications of, you know, an electronics specialist on a, a Navy ship um, being, uh, you know, encountering a, a UFO. So it's a two-pronged thing. Could you tell us more about that, uh, that particular incident? Yeah, it's an amazing case. It occurred around 1960 aboard the USS Valley Forge. Jim Kubelbeck was a Navy electronics specialist, and uh, one evening, this is around uh, June, July, August, he was out on the deck and observed these very large, bright orange lights um, some distance from the ship, and I was really impressed by them because he could not identify them. He was trained in identifying aircraft, and these were nothing like he had ever seen before. There was a lot of strange characteristics about them. They were totally silent. They were very, very large. They were glowing and pulsating, and that could only be seen if you looked directly at them. They were absolutely invisible in your peripheral vision, which he found very strange. Uh, he actually ran down to his uh, cabin there, below deck, to get some binoculars that he had bought earlier at Shoreleaf, and convinced a bunch of his fellow officers to go up on deck to also observe this. He had two pairs of binoculars and about a dozen of these guys observed this, these objects for quite some period of time. They're not sure how long. Um, he went down below deck several times and alerted the bridge about these objects, these lights. And the bridge first denied it and later said, you know, we're not going to talk right now. We're too damn busy about all, with all this. So it was a very strange and kind of lengthy sighting. But what was really interesting was it, it had... In, aspects to it that were uh, very unusual. The next day, 
he was went on on deck to see if these lights would return. They didn't, but as he's uh, below deck, he's checking out his binoculars, and some of the men he, he had been with that previous evening watching these UFOs uh, started joking with him about his binoculars, and it turned out they did not remember seeing these UFOs at all. The event had been completely wiped from their memory. That what amounts to missing time. I mean, they just did not remember seeing this very amazing sighting. Uh, this really kind of upset Kubelbeck, uh, Jim Kubelbeck, and uh, he finally found one or two of the guys who was up there who did remember seeing these UFOs, but it was very strange because, yeah, most of them did not remember. And what's really interesting is Jim Kubelbeck remembered more than just a sighting. He remembered actually being contacted by what he believes are the pilots of these objects. So did they share information with him about this alternative energy? That's really interesting. Yeah, they sure did. You know, it's not uncommon when someone's taken on board a UFO that they're, well, examined, of course, but after that, perhaps given messages or taken to see the engine room. That's actually pretty common. It's happened in a number of cases. People are taken to see the engine room of the craft and actually told how it works. And that's exactly what he describes. Um, he describes the people that he saw as being normal, human-looking people. But they were very, very interested in uh, his ideas about energy, and uh, particularly alternative energy, um, free, magnetic free engines, or, and uh, that type of thing, without using fossil fuels, and right. perhaps you know, solar energy and water energy. They were talking in depth about these subjects. Was he, took, was he actually abducted? Do you feel that he, did he report being taken and, and along with the other people not remembering? Uh, could have been in, in a case of a multiple abduction or just was he, a, was he sort of a, went through that experience? Um, you know, he's not sure. He kind oh. of remembered this as a dream, but it was unlike any dream he ever had. That's common, yeah. He does not feel like he had missing time, but I'm wondering because, you know, as these UFOs disappeared, the ship actually turned away from them and went directly away. I and mean, they were clearly aware on the bridge of these objects. And uh, I believe that, yes, they were trying to make contact with these guys to sort of give them a message about mm -hmm. alternative energy. Preston, That's I'm what? curious as to the circumstances uh, that this story was told to you. Uh, this happened in 1960. I mean, I don't need to tell you guys that there are there are a lot of... A lot of UFO researchers and writers uh, toiling in this vineyard. And for a, a remarkable story like that to go untold or unpublished for so long, why you, why now? Um, well, he was actually an elderly man when he contacted me, and he kind of wanted to get this story out. He felt it was really important and uh, had kept it secret from long, for a very long time, um, including from his family. Uh, just... Not that he was, you know, nervous about uh, ridicule or anything like that. It was just kind of a private experience for him. And uh, afterwards, he actually ended up building this sort of a perpetual motion device based on what he had learned from these guys and uh, just using kind of magnetics and a bicycle wheel and other stuff he picked up from the local hardware store and uh, told his whole family about the encounter, and they encouraged him to do this. So that's kind of what inspired him. And uh, this thing, he said, would turn for days and days. Was he ever told not to report this or not to talk about it? 
No, um, he didn't have anything like that. Uh, no, not either way, you know, talk about this or don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. It's just something that, you know, he kept privately, which is, you know, something that a lot of witnesses do. They don't like to talk about this sort of thing. I, I want to uh, dial back uh, to a previous uh, article or, or work. And uh, th- again, this is new territory for me. Uh, you mentioned in this case of someone being taken on board, not necessarily an abduction, but the idea of people who have been taken on board some sort of a craft where they have seen a collection of animals, and you refer to it as an alien zoo. I would love to hear more about that, Preston. Right, right. That's from one of my earlier books, not from here. And uh, it's something, you know, I, I know some people are taken on board. It's pretty much a standard experience for the most part. They're examined. Perhaps genetic material is taken. Uh, they're given messages. Perhaps they're shown the engine room or something like this. But in a small handful of cases, but now I'm, I'm going to say there's at least a dozen like this, um, they don't see the engine room. They see what amounts to an alien zoo or something very similar. Uh, one very interesting case is what that of one of John Mack's clients. And uh, she says that she was taken on board a UFO, and what she saw was in one of these rooms was an entire pine forest. She was about the size of a gymnasium. was absolutely alive. She could smell the trees. She could, you know, birds and other animals were there in the forest. And she felt it was like some kind of nature preserve. And uh, there's a number of cases like this. Betty Andreessen, she also reports a very similar incident in which she was taken on board a UFO and saw all these various creatures in glass-type enclosures. Uh, and uh, I found more of them. There's a real estate agent from Oregon, uh, Katerina. She wrote a book about her encounters, and she was taken on board a UFO and saw all kinds of animals, some from Earth and some definitely not. She said there was a very large gorilla-type being, which uh, definitely was not from, from around here, and another cat-like being. And, uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of cases like this. There was another family. Uh, this is also in Oregon. And they were taken on board a UFO and described that they had a virtual Noah's Ark of creatures. Uh, a lot of them from our planet, but a lot of them weren't. And they had plants as well. And I should add that there's been many, many cases where UFOs have been seen landing and taking various creatures, whether it's, you know, rabbits or cows, or there's a case down in Brazil or uh, Peru, that, that area, South America, where uh, a UFO is seen hovering over a swamp and abducting alligators, not once, but twice. So clearly, they're not only abducting humans, but plants and animals as well. That's fascinating. And, and not to be flippant here, but I mean, uh, how would one tell the difference necessarily between an alien life form, let's say uh, uh, some sort of a, I don't know, an alien mammal uh, versus, uh, you know, a far more sophisticated, intelligent uh, entity. Uh, You know, if you're dealing with, for example, praying mantis types, I mean, how do you differentiate between that and some other creature that, as far as you know, could be, you know, a super intelligent being? It may look like, I don't know, the alien equivalent of an elephant, but who knows? Maybe it's... (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. Um, well, you know, 
we can't really tell. Betty Andreessen talked about how some of the creatures she saw in closures were definitely from our distant past, dinosaur-type beings, but as well included primitive man, or a, what you would call you know, cavemen or a Neanderthals, this sort of thing. You may have seen the, the movie, I'm not sure if you have or not, the, the, the movie uh, Arrival. Have you caught that movie yet? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, no, I have I. Yet, yeah. It's a, it stars Amy Adams and a lot of other really good good actors. Um, I saw it at the, on, the, on the big screen about a month and a half ago. And the, what you're, you're, you're describing, this large, um, how can I put it, uh, not oval shape, almost cone shape, uh, vertical craft, uh, the size of the CN Tower up here in Toronto, uh, comes down and lands in the middle, uh, or at least positions itself over the land. And Amy Adams and a crew goes into it, and they go into this smoky, large room. There's a glass uh, screen, and behind the screen, there's this smoke, and then these really bizarre creatures, to the point that Richard's saying right now, you just don't know what these things look like. And then they slap onto the, the glass screen these almost uh, Gaelic symbols of some kind with circles, and, and it's their language. So, I mean, how do you tell a sentient being uh, that, that may or may not look like anything you've ever seen before from just a simple animal? And this, this movie, uh, it really depicted it very, very well. Wow. Um, I mean, is there... I mean, the, the whole UFO field now has given rise to exopolitics, mm-hmm. discussing the political implications, but is there not an exobiology as well? There certainly is, oh, for sure, because different kinds of creatures have been seen by by people who have had contact, abductees. They've seen different types of, uh, which look like, you know, quasi-non-sentient beings, but they are, in fact, uh, animal-like. Uh, many people have described those kinds of things, yes. Victor, why don't you uh, introduce another one of these cases? Yeah, there's another one. Uh, there's I, I guess it's it's the one that really interests me because it has a uh, it relates to a to a chi- to a child and I've had some experience with uh, with with younger folks um, in elementary school age who have had experiences and the one of a young child experiences an encounter with a Nordic uh, ET uh, that, that marks a lifelong series of events. I mean that to me is uh, not only does he experience it but they they keep on continuing in his lifetime. So what was that all about? Yeah, that's definitely a pattern that uh, occurs within the with people who've had you know extensive contact. In particular, uh, they'll have contact as a child, and it continues throughout their life, and often it's generational. And that's definitely true in his case. Uh, he, when he was around 11 years old, his mom sent him out to mail a letter. This was in St. Louis, Missouri, and he actually lived on a pretty busy street, lots of cars. And as he's walking home, just a couple of blocks from home, uh, it was 9 o'clock, all the cars disappear. Uh, should be impossible. This is a very busy street. And this object drops down out of the sky right over his head, hovering right over the building he's next to. And he's looking up. He can see it's metallic. It's round. It's got a grid work type of stuff on the bottom of it. And it, suddenly it sends down this brilliant beam of light. And that's, I mean, the next thing he remembers He's walking home, and an hour or two have passed. He has had mm-hmm. missing time, and his mom is furious. She's like, where have you been for the last hour? You know, I've been looking for you. And uh, he did not know what to tell her. He wasn't quite sure what had happened, but he felt absolutely transformed by this experience. He said it was as if a veil 
had been lifted from his mind. He felt much more clear-headed. He felt smarter, like he could think faster, and had kind of been enlightened in some way. And what's really interesting about this case is he spontaneously remembered what happened during this missing time, at least some of it. Uh, he recalled, after the light hit him, he found himself aboard this craft, and there were these two, th maybe three men. They looked pretty much identical. They had very carefully cut hair. Freston, I apologize. I'm going to have to cut in here. We're uh, heading into a break. We'll pick up on this case, an encounter with the Nordics. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, Preston Dennett, Inside UFOs, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network. Stay with us. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Next week on the program, uh, John Rappaport, a brilliant uh, investigative journalist who worked the um, the medical beat for many years and uh, he'll be with us in the first hour second hour our dear friend uh, rosemary ellen guiley paranormal investigator author of nearly 60 books and uh, preston dennett likewise very prolific he's um, approaching 20 books his latest inside ufos true accounts of contact with extraterrestrials 10 never before uh, published uh, close Encounters with ETs, and uh, in studio uh, from Zealand News Network, Victor Vigiani. Victor, you were asking Preston about this encounter yeah. a young man had with a Nordic uh, that would um, would go on for years. Uh, yeah. Now, the Nordics, uh, they're generally, encounters with Nordics are generally a positive experience. Are generally they not? benevolent, generally speaking, yes. I've never, in my experience with this, um, the Nordic beings seem to be most like us in terms of just their physicality. They're taller, but they're you know, a little different looking. But uh, I've never heard of a situation with the people, the experiences that I've uh, had experience with, that have had some sort of negative experience. Uh, they've all been very, very positive, very amicable and sharing and very sensitive and intuitive and I'm just wondering uh, on the basis of what uh, you know Preston's been describing this this man as he grew older did these uh, experiences a continue with the Nordics and did these these experiences continue to be sort of benevolent and sort of uh, learning experiences for him oh yeah they absolutely did uh, what's very interesting is uh I mean, he didn't remember everything they said, but he remembered that they had very long, deep, philosophical conversations uh, and uh, left him completely changed. His grades had been very poor before this incident. Following them, he rose to the top of the class and pretty much stayed there throughout school. But uh, that was the last time he actually saw the Nordics. Following that, his contacts involved grays. Mm, totally but, uh, different, yeah. They were still largely friendly. Um, he had a lot of missing time type incidents. He had a number of incidents involving 
screen memories where he thought he saw initially deer or something like this and then would meditate on it and realize, no, these were the greys. Uh, he had one incident in which the entire family was watching this UFO right outside their farmhouse. They had moved out of the city at this point. And uh, he runs inside to get his shotgun, which had a scope on it. He wasn't planning on shooting this UFO. He just wanted to get a closer look. <laughs> That's odd. Why would one need a scope with a shotgun? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, so, I mean, that's what he did. So he runs back outside, and the UFO is still there. Pulls up the rifle with the scope, and looks through it, and the UFO is gone. Puts the gun down, and sees that his whole family is now frozen in place. You know, the, not only his family, everything around him. He can still move, but birds in the sky are not moving. His dad's holding a bucket filled with milk, and it's halfway splashed over and frozen in place. They have somehow stops time, apparently. Uh, he's running around in a panic um, and turns and sees right in the front yard this UFO has now landed and three greys are getting out and walking towards him. So they have the ability to apparently control time to some extent, and this has turned up in other cases. And, yeah, he had incident after incident like this. He had one incident where they came, took him up in, inside a UFO, and actually explained to them how they were able to transport humans uh, while moving at very, very high speeds and right angles. This was something that had been puzzling him. And apparently, they responded to his question by showing him and placed him inside this chair, which filled up with liquid. Um, a top came over the chair, and uh, this liquid sort of encased him like inside of a tank. He was actually forced to breathe this liquid and uh, he was able to do so, and they told him flat out, this is how we are able to transport humans. The breathing pools. Yeah. yeah. Right. Have you heard about this before? Definitely. Right? The breathing pools, yes. I, I've dealt with experiencers, Richard, who've uh, actually had almost like womb-like experiences where they'd be within some sort of tank, and it wouldn't be necessarily water. It was sort of like a, a liquid of some kind, and they would uh, breathe in this liquid, and it would take it into, the, but they wouldn't be suffocating as, as a drowning person would. So it's very, very bizarre. All right. We'll uh, step away, come back with Preston Dennett, Victor Vigiani, Inside UFOs, True Accounts of Contact. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Retirement Miramichi. What is it about this East Coast dream that has residents saying we should have moved here years ago? Is it the low cost of living? The location on New Brunswick's spirited Miramichi River? In a word, yes. Or in the words of a resident, this is as close to heaven as you're going to get. Get a little closer online at retirenb.ca and move in now to Retirement Miramichi. Your home was once your comfort zone. But now you have an accessibility challenge that turns a home into a hazard. The solution? The Total Home Safety Check. Total Access Center will come to your home, check every room for potential hazards, and then suggest the best safety solutions. It's sort of like your home adapting to you. Book your no-charge assessment with the Total Access Center. Call 416-546-1000. Yes, the Total Home Safety Check is free. And isn't that comforting? When connection's everything, Fido's got exactly what you need. 
Now get Fido Home Internet starting from $35 a month and surf and stream what you love. Modem rental included, no term contract, and no cancellation fee. Want more? Check out our unlimited plan and don't forget to ask us how to get a $100 credit on your bill. Go to Fido.ca for more details or visit one of our Fido stores today. Conditions apply. Fido. Go get it. Buying around at a fabled pub in Dublin is the best way we know to make friends out of strangers. It's the best of Ireland. Experience the world of Craig Travel, and with some Irish luck, you could win a 16-day adventure along dramatic coastlines, past ancient lore to historic castles. Craig Travel's Best of Ireland, a fully inclusive trip worth over $10,000. Enter today at everythingzoomer.com slash Ireland. The owners of The System are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, we are uh, back with Preston Dennett, Victor Vigiani, for a few moments yet. And uh, previously, uh, Preston, you have written uh, about uh, the book, I believe was entitled uh, Healing UFOs, uh, where we have uh, people that have had a close encounter and they have either developed some un- uh, some unique physiological uh, ability. I'm, I, um, I met a woman once um, who claimed to have been abducted, and um, afterwards she was almost impervious to pain. She actually came into the studio one time. This was I was up the street at another radio station, and she stuck a knife in her hand and felt nothing. Now, was that as a result of the abduction? Who knows? But uh, so you've got the this dichotomy because you have people who are being healed by UFOs, but then you have a case in in uh, Inside UFOs, the new book, in which a um, I believe is a young uh, uh, a paper boy. Uh, who has an encounter and then develops this mysterious illness, perhaps, as a result. Tell us about that. Right. This is not unheard of, certainly. Getting too close to a UFO is, might not be wise. And in this case, I think is a good example. Uh, this gentleman, I call him William Trimble, that's a pseudonym, uh, he was delivering papers. He had to wake up at 4 a.m. each Sunday morning as a young boy to deliver these papers to his local uh, neighbors in his neighborhood, and uh, was doing so. It was around 4, 4.30 in the morning when he had just started, and this object comes zooming down out of the sky. At this time, he was pretty familiar with aircraft. Despite his young age, he had developed an interest in aircraft, and this was nothing he had ever seen. It had no running lights. There were no wing lights, no strobes, nothing but a big, bright, white ball of light. And he's trying to determine how close it is to him, how low down. He feels like it's pretty close. It feels like it's right above him, just maybe 50, 100 feet up and large. And he's trying to figure out what's going on here when suddenly it flashes a bright beam of light at him or he just sees this bright flash of light. And next thing he knows, he feels disoriented and it's now daytime at least a couple of hours have passed he starts delivering papers as fast as he can uh, people are already waiting on their doorsteps wondering what's going on by the time he gets home his parents are furious his boss is calling and he's just exhausted and following this incident he had to deliver papers you know multiple times a week 
went back to delivering papers and could not do it. He was just too weak, could not manage the strength to throw these papers the necessary distance and couldn't even bike home by the time he was done. And it took about a week, but his, he just got sicker and sicker and didn't tell his parents what happened, but got to the point where he could not get out of bed and had to be rushed off to the hospital. Still didn't say what happened. Uh, this is not unusual. A lot of people I've talked to who have had symptoms as a result of a UFO encounter, whether good or bad, don't tell the doctors for whatever reason, and he certainly didn't. And the doctors were unable to diagnose him. They ended up giving him a vitamin cocktail and sending him home for bed rest. And uh, he was sick for three, four months at least, almost the whole year. He was bedridden. He lost a lot of friends. He missed school and uh, had, I mean, he attributes this directly to his UFO experience. And I agree with him. It sounds to me like he has had some version of a radiation sickness. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think he got beamed by this UFO. Uh, he did have other strange experiences in his childhood that he tracked back. And in adulthood, he continued to have some unusual experiences and eventually sought out hypnosis. He's one of two people in the book who've undergone regressive hypnosis. And uh, after having read quite a bit about UFOs, he contacted a hypnotherapist who said, you know, having read about UFOs, a strong possibility that your recall is going to be contaminated. Uh, he agreed to do it anyway, and under hypnosis, recalled a fairly typical abduction. He was taken aboard this craft. Uh, he was examined. But what was very interesting is he didn't see great IPTs. He said that Actually, what he saw was a very tall figure, uh, and it had a yellowish kind of tint to its skin, but otherwise was very similar to what he had read, having, you know, large, dark eyes and a large, bald, hairless head. And he said it was, the experience itself was so frightening that he kept passing in and out of consciousness through the whole thing. And the last thing he remembers is he's being placed down next to his bike. They're putting his hands back on the handlebars, putting him in the exact position he was when he first saw this thing. And they disappear, and the UFO darts off, and the experience is over. Wow. Are there many cases, Victor, yeah. that you're aware of that where a, a witness uh, or someone who's had a close encounter has had sort of suffered deleterious health effects? I, like the Falcon Lake case in northern like, Manitoba, yeah. where someone had, had radiation burns. Mm -hmm. But other cases? Yeah, there's there was one incident in, uh, in Texas. I don't recall. I think it was back in the, the late... 80s, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Preston could probably corroborate it. But uh, two ladies were uh, confronted by they were driving their car along a, a road in Texas, and this massive UFO um, just lit in front of them. The car stopped. They got out to look at it, and um, it, they were they experienced something. They felt heat on their body. Got back in the car. They, the, the lady went to touch the car handle to open the door. Uh, both of them got in the car. They, you know, they did eventually get in. The, the UFO disappeared, but both of the ladies uh, suffered radiation uh, poisoning, and one of them um, uh, developed cancer from it. So uh, there's really no way of knowing of you know what the implications are of coming up to close uh, contact with one of these craft. Uh, I want to ask you about um, again something that you have talked about in previous books, and this is something I've never read or heard from any other 
UFO writer researcher, I could be wrong, but and that is the odor um, given off by UFOs. And sometimes it ha the, the odor, as we're talking about health, sometimes the odor has an effect on people. Tell me about this. Yeah, there hasn't been a whole lot of research into this, and uh, this is one of the chapters in my book, Not From Here. Uh, I surveyed a good, gosh, about 50 cases and found that the odors fall into two main categories, uh, one being kind of a chemical or metallic odor, um, often described as ozone, or the second category would be organic odors. And I have to tell you, when people are taken on board a UFO, generally speaking, these odors are not pleasant. A number of people have described the smells as being similar to a locker room or very dirty and kind of muggy and smelly. Uh, so I found that kind of interesting. Uh, a number of people have described it smelling like uh, beans and franks or hot dogs. I heard that three or four times, which... I found fascinating. Uh, what I find really interesting about these UFO odors is, one, they point to the, towards these objects being metallic machines. Often electrical machines will leave an ozone-like odor, and that's very common in these cases. And conversely, the organic odors reported points towards the likelihood that we're dealing with biological beings here. A number of people have actually smelled the ETs themselves and described a slight kind of uh, odor that was, and in a couple of cases, three or four, they described the ETs as smelling kind of like woodsy was the actual term used in at least two or three cases. Uh, Willie Strievers said that they smelled kind of like cinnamon or wet cardboard, but uh, you definitely get a sort of a subtle... Yeah. organic yeah. odor from these ETs. The, the psychological effect of the, these odors are, are really, um, I mean, even as a child, most of us can remember walking into homes or when grandma's cooking and, and remembering that. Uh, the, the, that it's the that, most provocative. The oral factory it, is most provocative of all of senses, for sure. Yeah. Let me ask you, Preston, um, you, you've gone through, uh, I mean, I'm just sort of looking at the list of things that you've, um, you've elucidated here. Um, and for every you know one experience that you've um, that you've outlined and talked to these people about, um, there's got to be a hundred others. How many how many people do you think are out there right now? Uh, and I've been you know I've been through this a lot over the past thirty five or forty years. In your estimation, how many people on the planet right now are experiencing this kind of contact, and what what kind of consistency is happening? Because let's face it, uh, you, know, you can talk about the geopolitical implications of all of this, and you know sightings and everything, but these ETs are making contact with millions of our people. What's your estimation of, of how the extraterrestrial phenomenon and the ETs themselves are making contact uh, w with our species? Yeah, well, I think any estimations of how common this experience is is vastly underestimated. When I first got involved in this field, I heard a quote from J. Allen Hynek, uh, the father of modern ufology. He worked on Project Blue Book and ended up kind of defecting from the Air Force and writing his own books about UFOs, and uh, there's a quote from him saying that one in 40 people have had an onboard experience. Mm. And I heard that, and I thought, no, there's just no way I know 40 people, and I don't, I'm sure that I don't know anyone who's been on board a UFO. Well, that was in the beginning of my research. It turned out I was wrong. <laughs> I did not have to ask 40 people, and I found about five people who 
it's in my circle of family, friends, and coworkers who are having this experience. So that sort of alerted me that this is probably more common than most people realize. I surveyed a lot of the major researchers like you know Jacques Vallée, mm-hmm. Bud Hopkins, and whoever I could get my hands on, and uh, they kind of agreed. I ended up writing an article for the MUFON Journal titling it One in 40 People and you know, yeah. outlining this theory that there's sort of an invisible epidemic. And it was about a year later, the Roper Poll came out and right. found one in 50. So yeah, I do think it's very common. And I always ask people when I interview them, did you report this to anyone? The right. police, you know, the Air Force, you know, a UFO reporting center? One out of 100 say no. Yeah. And these UFO reporting centers, by the way, are receiving a lot of reports. In California alone, they receive you know, daily reports, uh, you know, five, ten a day. So in my opinion, there's someone being abducted at any given time fr- from our planet. Hundreds of people are having sightings right now. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's a very active and much more active than people realize. Preston, uh, sadly, we are out of time. I'm going to have to have you back. Um... Because, as I say, you cover a lot of ground that nobody else touches. And uh, a great find and a great guest. And thank you for hanging out with us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks again. Preston Dennett. And uh, very quickly, let me give you all the uh, the website. You can click on his name at strangeplanet.ca. That'll take you to his website. But it's Preston Dennett, two N's, two T's in Dennett. Preston, P-R-E-S-T-O-N, Dennett.weebly.com. And there's a books page there. You can check out all his work right there. Victor Vigiani, as always, thank you. Great to be here. Ryan, Albert, Ian, thank you all. Back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light, what you hear in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.